I'm with Sharon Stanley. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Serge. So, Sharon, you, your practice is about somatic transformation. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Um, yes, my practice, I work with mainly adult clients, and I work with a combination of attention to the body, to emotions, to movement, to images, and to symbolic archetypes, kind of recognizing that um, change and change in uh, people's lives really happens on the right hemisphere of the brain. So as we kind of work with the different elements, the different ways the right hemisphere of the brain uh, manifests itself, then we can process intense emotions from trauma. So it's a, it's an interesting way to consider all of these things from body to movement to archetype, and the uh, common point is the right hemisphere. That's right. That's right. And and in another way of thinking of it, it's uh, an affective processing model of psychotherapy. So it processes intense emotions that have yet to be integrated into someone's personality, someone's lived experience. Yeah. So maybe one way to uh, put some dimension into it would be to describe some of what happens or what you do in a session. Yes, um, and and I think it's probably important to just begin by saying each session is really different, each client is different, and each time that we work, but that the general principles we're really working with um, is the principle of neuroplasticity, of how neurological patterns can change, how the brain can change. So uh, what I basically work with are the basic principles of empathy and intersubjectivity, which is a concept that probably you're familiar with, uh, a way of being present to another intersubjectivity where, where you're honoring the subjectivity of the other person as you're honoring your own subjectivity. So as, as we normally begin work, let's say I'm working with a, a new client, one of the things that I spend a fair amount of time doing is establishing a way that we can both be present to each other, be present in awareness in the in the moment. Yeah. So that that um, this empathic bond or the intersubjective field can be the container for intense emotions, intense traumatic survival emotions. So maybe we can speak a little bit more about this. It's not just the intention of being ready and open to intersubjectivity, but it's also doing something to prepare for this, to allow it to happen. Yes, yes. Um, the first principle to allow this kind of intersubjectivity to happen, I call it somatic empathy, and it's about receiving the other person fully in your mind and in your body and in your spirit so that you have to come into it as a practitioner fully being fully present embodied yourself so receiving the other person uh, being embodied yourself um, that's right how does how does that happen in a session how would you describe that 
Well, the first step that I know I need to take to to be able to be present, to receive the other person, is I need to hold the intention that I am going to be present in my body and mind, that I'm going to be really there, focused, and um, interested in the other person. And so then that becomes um, basically a habitual way of being with another that seems to give people a sense of safety and continuity that they can count on they can count on the me or the another person practicing this way of being there for them not only being there to pick up what they say but to pick up the subtle messages that their communication of the body is giving, particularly the messages that the face is continually communicating to uh, to another person when they feel safe. Yeah. So that intention, that the being present, uh, what happens at moments where you notice through your own awareness as a practitioner that you're not as present as you'd like to be? Well, the first thing that I need to do if I sense my attention has wandered or is to, um, is to come back into my own body and to sense the ground under my feet, to really get a sense of gravity um, pulling my body down to the earth. And as I do that, it seems to then bring me back into the present moment, bring me back into awareness of my subjectivity and the subjectivity of the other. So very much that paying attention to the body, to gravity, as a way to come back into the present moment. Right, right. And if I notice that... um, I seem to have some kind of tension or tightness or some kind of a, a reaction that I have to something that's coming up in the session, then just noticing that and taking time to be curious and interested about it so that it's uh, it's part of the whole intersubjective field is the, my reception of what dynamics are going on between us in that relationship. Yeah. So having you know, paid attention to this state of receptivity, uh, you were describing what happens in a session, understanding that, of course, no two sessions are alike. Yeah. Uh, and in the session, basically, then once that... This kind of flow, I, I sense it as a, a mutual flow that we're, as some people might describe it, you're on the same page or you're attuned or you're resonant. Because um, one of the things I've realized is that people who have come for help, people who have come because they've been in intense suffering, are constantly aware, continually aware of how I'm receiving them. So they're continually checking in to see, um, is this too much for uh, Sharon? Is this, is this boring to Sharon? Is, am I going to traumatize her if I tell her what, uh, what's really going on for me? Will she judge me? So that, um, 
there's a conversation that's going on uh, physiologically in face-to-face encounters that's beneath the spoken word. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so we're really not just talking about the contents of the session. We're talking about that process of being on the same page, being attuned, yeah, it's it's really being attuned to the nonverbal communication, as Alan Shore would describe it, being attuned to the right hemispheric uh, shifts in the face, those small movements that happen in a fraction of a second where someone can express um, just in a flash uh, their hurt or their curiosity. Uh, being attuned so that you pick up these more subtle cues that lead you in deeper and deeper into the dynamics of that trauma. Because we know that once we've established an intersubjective field, that we're often going to get a reenactment of the trauma in, in the present moment, in the present moment relationship so that um, we notice those dynamics with a witness. I, okay, I'm noticing that we're both going into um, a kind of a reenactment. Uh, there's something familiar to both of us about what we're processing at this deeper level. It may be new information on a verbal level, on an explicit level. But the right hemisphere is entering into relational dynamics that um, that I think are best described as enactments. Yeah, yeah. So it's a relational field, and within that relational field, there is an enactment, a reenactment of some That's dynamic. Of some dynamic, that on some level I have a subjective... Uh, response to what's being offered by the patient or the patient has a subjective response to my reactions so that there's this ongoing dynamic that hopefully we will find together a new way to emerge that um, completes this traumatic experience of the past and will complete it in the present moment in the psychotherapeutic experience. So maybe could you mention a, a way, an example, a session uh, in which some of this enactment takes place? Yeah, I, I was thinking of a case, Serge, just as we were preparing to talk. And I was thinking of a, of a woman that I had worked with for probably about three years. And we were working with a lot of... Um, intense emotions, a lot of early attachment trauma, a uh, fair amount of dissociation and dissociated behavior, addiction, addictive behavior. So um, one of the things uh, that had happened in uh, one of our sessions is that this woman went into an, an intensely angry description of something that had happened to her. And as I watched and picked up her anger, I realized it, she'd gone into a very strong hyper-arousal. And um, this hyper-arousal of, of really rage. And then in an instant, in just a flash, 
she descended from that rage into a very deep hypo-aroused state into where her lips began to turn blue and it looked like she was in shock. And so I... Um, I became a little frightened because I I was concerned uh, about just her body state in that moment. And I asked her to just very slowly open her eyes and come back to the present moment so that... Um, so that this very quick descent from a hyper-aroused state to a hypo-aroused state um, uh, concerned me, uh, brought up a little bit of fear in me of her well-being. For her, her experience was that this quick descent from her rage gave her a relief from her rage and so she was frustrated with me asking her to be present in the present moment so we had to negotiate that Uh, we had to negotiate her experience of needing to have a relief and my experience of concern and fear that perhaps this um, this quick descent into a hypo-aroused state, or as Stephen Porges would call it, a dorsal vagal state that has been coupled with fear. These these states uh, that Porges describes as lethal in human beings um, was a concern for me. But this woman had been using this uh, process of managing intense rage most of her life. And it, it seemed, from her point of view, to work for, with, for her. So this became a very fertile place for the two of us to start to negotiate. Well, perhaps there's other ways to work with these rage states when they emerge. Yeah. So, so there's a, several levels to what you're talking about. Uh, and... One of them is the sense of uh, noticing the hyperarousal, the hypoarousal, and the fact that hypoarousal is not the only way to manage the red rage state. But another one is the intersubjective events between you and her, and uh, you having some concern, her being comfortable with her habitual way of managing rage and the negotiation that happened without him. Yes, yes, and it, it seemed to me it was in this negotiation of another pattern, another another way of managing these intense states that then a change was possible, a transformation, if you will, was possible. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that, that you said in this negotiation then, another pattern was possible. How would what happen in that negotiation? Well, in this negotiation phase, um, and it lasted for a while, a number of sessions, um, it was a it was important for me to really um, come to understand what my concern was and and to realize that I had expressed my concern with um, and not particularly skillfully. I had expressed my concern as I probably would express my concern if I'd seen a child heading near a fire. I had, um, I had frightened her with my concern. And so the way that I had frightened her 
I needed to take responsibility for. I needed to be accountable for. And I also really needed to listen to the deep comfort she got in these hypoaroused states and to validate that this had been an important survival strategy for her for most of her life. And I also, just to be honest, I needed to apologize for frightening her, uh, for um, for perhaps not as skillfully helping her come up out of that hypoaroused state as well as we could have. So it was important for me to to look deeply at my part of um, a bit of a breach in a relationship. And to take responsibility where I felt I was responsible. Well, that's a that's a very beautiful example uh, in showing that intersubjective part. We're not talking about things happening neurologically in a way uh, independent of the relationship, and we're not talking about fixing them in uh, just in a way uh, talk fixing the nervous system as if it were interact, independent of the interaction between human beings. Serge, I think you've got it. That's the central theme that I'm trying to develop in the work, is how do we show up at, fully as persons and therapists to our patients, to our clients, and how do we... Um, continue to transform our own lives from the gifts they offer us. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. So that as we go deeper and deeper into this intersubjective field, it affects both of us. So, obviously when you call the practice somatic transformation, I can see how... Uh, the goal is very transformative. Well, it is. It's um, it's transformative of um, of like you say, old neurological patterns that are really getting in the way of our ability to to fully live out our lives in the world. So we are transforming those neural patterns, but it's definitely within the context of a real lived relationship where we both are struggling to find what's true and what's real and what's kind and loving. So we've touched very much of this example on uh, the relationship and its importance. What we haven't talked about is that aspect of your work that is related to archetype, that's related to uh, uh, you know other civilizations and uh, those kinds of things. Yes, I think um, I have been very, very strongly influenced by several different uh, cross-cultural experiences I've had. Uh, the first one I could speak about was... Uh, I worked for a number of years in Canada with First Nations tribes, uh, working with what is called the residential school trauma that, that a whole civilization, a whole culture in Canada endured for well over a hundred years. And the tremendous, uh, 
genocide is their term that they've used to describe the uh, intrusion of colonialism in their lives. And as I, I was a university teacher at the University of Victoria, and I came into contact with people from the tribes who were studying to get a master's in psychotherapy, but they became really interested in the work I had been doing on somatic um, somatic work with trauma. And so two different nations uh, invited me to come and to work with them and to work with their people. And I think as I look back on those days, I know that there were probably many ways I made errors that I, I wish I hadn't. Um, I didn't really, and I, I suspect that's for most of us that have grown up in um, in white America, that I, I didn't fully understand the cultural differences. And and I think I, I consider those years years where I became deeply educated by people who put up with me and forgave me and taught me what it was to be embodied, to live life in the body and to communicate often um, simply through the body without necessarily needing words. So that uh, this was this was what I learned that these indigenous peoples had survived for centuries and they'd survived with strong social organizations, strong social hierarchies, and lived with um with beautiful art, beautiful, uh, beautiful ways of expressing themselves. Um, but it was really rooted in the body. It was rooted in their connection with the earth and with nature. Since uh, I worked up there for approximately five years, and since then I've been working with a culture in Brazil. It's an Afro-Brazilian culture that draws on the experience of um, African practices that were used as a recourse to the trauma of slavery. And uh, so I've been very interested for the last six years in traveling to Brazil in uh, the philosophy and the practices of these ancient cultures that people used to uh, negotiate, navigate through actually centuries of slavery. And I'm very moved by the love that was developed in their culture as they did that. So we're talking about cultures that had a very strong practice of relying on the body, of uh, sensing through the body and living in the body, and and that have yeah. used these practices uh, as a way to deal with the collective trauma of slavery and colonial oppression. Exactly, and and it's not just being in the body; it's being in the body in relationship. I think the two need to be, and then they're inextricably bound together. That I can be in my body, and I can have a wonderful, meditative, solitary experience. But it's radically different if I'm in my body, in relationship. Then I think the transformation can happen. The same way as... uh 
uh, in our own individual history as babies, uh, it is from the attachment that we get our development. That's right. That's right. And I've gotten really interested in the dimension of of the attachment process um, that includes music, of rhythm, of... Uh, in fact, there's a, a concept that I'm very intrigued with called communicative musicality, where this rhythm of the early attachment with our caregiver and the rhythm back and forth of the of the intersubjective relationship, if you will, between the infant and its caregiver. This this rhythm is the the profound dimension of the life force uh, coming through relationship, open to healing that which has has been uh, perhaps hurt or wounded or broken and um, is an ongoing process of development so that it's in relationship but in this kind of communicative uh, rhythm of life. So when you're talking about that rhythm, uh, you're talking about heartbeat, you're talking about the, the rhythm of uh, uh, responses to see the way the infant reacts and the mother reacts. What else? What uh the rhythm of um, of prosody. There's a, a term that um, that Alan Shore speaks about. Uh, prosody is the the voice of the caregiver. It's the rhythm that is in uh, the structure of the language where the mother or the father talks to the infant. And the infant understands, not because they grasp the words or the concepts, but they feel the rhythm of the music. They feel the, the interaction of the body. And as the bodies move, as the voice moves, um, as the gestures move in rhythm, then this communicates life. Uh, I think one of the interesting things I'm fascinated by in the work of Ed Tronic, who's done a fair amount of research in attachment. And he works with uh, a research model called the still face. And in this research model, you might be familiar with it, the infant um, is playing with the mother, and the mother is engaging spontaneously with the infant. And then the mother, in this research, is instructed to allow her face to go still and not respond to the baby. And um, there's a part of my heart that breaks whenever I see this research because instantly you see the baby wondering what's happening. Um, and, you know, in, in a period of time, some babies simply give up and they begin to have that facial configuration of stillness themselves. I think that's a lot of what we're seeing in these children being diagnosed as autistic and um, and and this research has given us a tremendous amount of information about uh, about the rhythm of spontaneity and spontaneous play spontaneous interaction between the mother or the caregiver and the infant and and maybe we need to start to think about bringing that into our psychotherapeutic practice, that we can go beyond just being embodied and being in relationship, but we can bring in this way of being in a rhythm together. 
and that's uh, that's a, a, a connection at a big level. Yes, yes, and that's you know the emotions when they become um, when they're unprocessed leads to that kind of stillness. It leads to again what Porges is calling the immobilized response that's locked in. It's an overlay with a sympathetic arousal. So that um, there's a real stillness, a quiet, sometimes a calmness that's mistaken for um, for well-being. When actually the alive, um, developing child is someone who feels who feels the rhythm of the world around them, the world of the world of the parent, the world of nature, the world of um, of relationships that they're in, and they can they can flow because they're in this rhythm. They're not caught in an immobilized state. So that this rhythm is the rhythm of life, like you say, the rhythm of the heartbeat, the rhythm of the breath, the rhythm of the cellular movement of contraction and expansion. These fundamental rhythms are being restored in this um, in this daily encounter with the caregiver that the infant has if the if the caregiver is able to be in in a state of regulation as as uh, many different researchers have called it. And so that's what we're trying to replicate in psychotherapy, is how do we provide this kind of rich, lived experience where we go deeply into the stillness, the pain, the fear, and the suffering. But we also bring to that the aliveness that we carry within us, within our own psyche, within our own bodies. And thus we both transform. So really I'm struck by the uh, words you're using, that rich lived experience. So that's uh, very uh, consistent with the other ways you have described the therapy. It's that moment of um, uh, intersubjectivity, that uh, connection, that attunement uh, is what creates that rich lived experience. Yes. Yes, um, a lived experience that has depth and resonance and color and movement. And you mentioned archetypes. Um, I think when we begin to live in this rich, somatic, attuned, relational experience, there emerges in the psyche, there emerges in human experience, um, what Jung called the collective unconscious, the uh, the ways other human beings have lived in in tune with nature, with tune with the earth and the environment, so that um, we're not alone. We're we're in contact with other civilizations that have found both the the intense joy of human life, but also the deepest suffering of human life. Yeah, yeah, so we tune in to these archetypal experiences. That's right, that's right. And uh, just another example, I was working with a client. Actually, it was the first time I worked with her this week. And one of the beautiful, um, as we worked with some of the shame that was held deep in her nervous system, and we continued to process that in relationship. Um, a beautiful image spontaneously arose 
of a tree, of a very, very alive tree. And both of us recognize this as the archetype of the tree of life that was present to both of us to nurture us so that we both felt restored by the session. That's very that's a beautiful example of being very much on the same wavelengths, yeah. Yes, yes. Um yeah, it was it was something I just Sometimes I, I think, Serge, I, I get so much from my clients and from my students that um, that it's it's more than I could ever have given. Mm-hmm. So, Sharon, as we're coming to the end, I want to just check with you if there's something that you might want to add or say as some form of a conclusion to this. Well, you know, Serge, I really appreciate um, how you've heard my work and how you've been able to express it. So I really appreciate your skill and your ability to do that. Thanks, Sharon. Yeah. Um, the other thing I, I just briefly mention is that um, I do teach this work and... Um, and the work in teaching it is also very much working in that relational field where working basically with scholar practitioners studying the emerging neuroscience research, studying their own lived experience, we, we come together to teach each other what we're discovering about this new paradigm of psychotherapy. So that I, I so much of what I've learned I've learned from not only my clients, but the many uh, participants in the trainings that I've been doing for a number of years. So I just want to give thanks to them, too. It's, it's been um, such an extremely uh, wealth of, um, of learning and growth and development. So, so my gratitude to all that have participated in this work. Yeah. And maybe that's uh, another way of uh, touching on something that I think is very important for you, is that sense of uh, reflecting on experience and learning from reflecting on experience. Yes, I think that's uh, a piece in this new paradigm that needs a fair amount of attention. What does it mean to reflect on these right hemispheric processes and how do we take them into a new knowledge base that is accessible to the left hemisphere, a new cognitive, if you will, way of being in the world so that this reflection on our somatic lived experience of, of our bodies, of being embodied, of relationship, of archetypes, um, is, is, is examined through the process of re- reflectivity and a co-reflectivity so that it is very much a part of our explicit way of knowing how to be in the world and how to, how to, how to give to the world what we're able to give. Thanks, Sharon. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com.